friends, I'm delighted to be here. I've known about this church. I've walked past it for the past 20 years. I've never been inside it. And uh, I, one of my dear friends in Scotland is a man called Neil Glover, who about 10 years ago or thereabouts had responsibility for youth work in this congregation. And I phoned him before I came over and said, what do you wear? Because different churches have different expectations, and I do have a very nice cream robe with a nice purple scarf that goes around the neck. And he said, well, when I spoke in the church, I just wore a shirt and tie, and just sometimes even a shirt. For those who are interested, you may be pleased to know, as his congregation is, that since ordination, he also wears trousers and <laughs> shoes. But it is a great, great joy to be in Belfast and to be among you this weekend. So now God be my speaking, God in our understanding, and may God move us. Amen. In the Gospel, we read that when Jesus spoke to the young man, he went away with a heavy heart. There are other versions of this story which speak of how Jesus, when he saw the young man, had a reaction in which his heart went out to him. But I don't know if today Jesus would have had the same accessibility to people of this young man's age because it seems to me that we don't speak to young people as much now as we did in the past. You know that if you go into houses, as I do, to visit people, and either there is no meal table but everyone takes their dinner or lunch on their knee, or those who are teenagers or even younger are expected to take a plate and go upside, upstairs and in front of their television or their Game Boy or their computer eat their food there. Statistically, in North America and in Britain, it has been proven that the meal table, the place of conversation, is diminishing in many households. And as a result, unsociable behaviour, unsociable behaviour, and young people of all socio-economic classes is directly tied to whether under the age of eight they sat at a meal table and spoke with adults and became incorporate in adult society. We don't talk to young people as much as we used to. Those who are tradesmen or tradeswomen who have a long enough memory will know this to be true also because there was a day when young people would move from the world of school at the age of 15 or 16 into the world of work. And when apprenticeships abounded, as they did in my hometown of Kilmarnock, you went from being a boy into a man's world where you learned about life through talking to those who were not your parents, but who still had an experience to share and a wisdom from which you might grow. But with the abolition of apprenticeships in many trades and with the school leaving age being raised post-war from 14 to 15, 15 to 16, 16, now the government would like it to be 18 and the possibility that people then might go to college. The entree into adult society where young people engage with adults is becoming much more limited. We don't talk to young people as much as we used to and certainly not as much as in Jesus' day. But we also notice that when people of my age go to the towns from which they came, I come from Kilmarnock, the only other person from Kilmarnock whom some people here might know is a man called John Walker who's been leaving the town 
for about 120 years in red bottles or black bottles, depending on your preference. And I remember when I was 14 or 15, my father said, it's time you had a suit, son. So he took me to Claude Alexander, the tailors, of which there were other stores in major towns and cities all over the United Kingdom. And into this store we went, and our far corner was the junior man department, which was just the same cloth as elsewhere, but you were treated like a junior man. You were measured and called sir by a boy who was about three months older than you. And oh, how great it felt to be entering then into adult society by way of a suit and sometimes even a waistcoat. And now I go into Kilmarnock where once there was Jackson's and Burton's and Claude Alexander and can you find a gent's tailor's? No! But you can find innumerable, I think they're called boutiques, fashion boutiques, which cater for the amazingly variable tastes of young people between the ages of 14 and 23 in which somebody of my age feels a bit like a strange man in a brassier shop wondering what to purchase or what to look at. And if you add to that an industry which is based around the variable taste in music of young people and of culture, then you discover that we have more and more segregated young people away from society to become an area, a clone on their own, a hermetically sealed zone with their own music, their own clothes, their own culture, and the singular inability to be able to pay for this stuff. <laughs> and it's people who are my age who are reaping vast profits from the variable tastes which we dictate young people must have without the, fair, the financial wherewithal to purchase these things. So we don't talk to young people as much if we, as we used to. And if they should in places riot, then one of the causes must be because they are not integrated into adult society as 20 or even fewer years ago they certainly would be. Every generation hands on a legacy to the one which succeeds it. At the beginning of the 20th century, the generation which came in the early 1900s inhabited a world where the British Empire was beginning to wane and responsibility for overseas territories was beginning to be a problem. Post-World War I, the young generation then inherited a world which was facing a very profound financial recession and the fact that the old enemy of Germany was not quite sleeping or dead in its hatred or suspicion of other parts of Europe. The post-World War II generation of which I'm a part inherited a world where we could have been blown up if the USA and Russia, these great nuclear powers, decided to play chess with their client states and eventually to threaten each other. And Strathclyde, where I live, was an ideal launching point because there we had the British and the American Northern European nuclear bases stationed on the River Clyde. I always wondered if nuclear weapons are so safe, why do they not dock them at Canary Wharf or maybe outside the Houses of Parliament rather than up the Clyde? 
The generation which came in the 80s inherited a more optimistic world where every year it seemed science would discover something which would make life easier or prolong life or which would enable things to be much more secure. But the generation which in the 21st century gets a legacy from the past is inheriting a world which is creaking at the seams because now we face the possibility of a catastrophic global disaster more than two or three nuclear bombs could do and a financial catastrophe which will not be remedied overnight. And it's only when you begin to engage with teenagers that then perhaps you discover that it's not easy to speak to young people. Twice recently I've been asked to go to what would be called prestigious schools, Glasgow Academy and King Edward School in Oxford, places from which one might expect to come the captains of industry and even the leaders in politics. And asked in both places to talk about consumerism and morality. And it's hard to have to say what you have to say, which is basically my generation and your parents' generation have pawned the family silver and emptied the vaults. We've lived a spendthrift life as if there's no tomorrow. We've exploited the earth beyond its ability to sustain this in the future. We have been myopic to the effects of the reconfiguration of global power. The world cannot afford you to live as extravagantly as your parents and I have lived. India is not going to sell much longer jeans at £2 a pair, which British retailers will sell for 40 China is not going to much longer be called the dirty old man of the world because its industrial effluent is at least a third caused by manufacturing products for Britain, which previously we produced in our own soil. The Tanzanian family, which uses a decimal point of energy compared with its European counterparts, is not going to keep its standard of living down in order that ours might be constantly high. Central American nations whose politics in a previous generation were engineered by the demands of the White House are not going to be subservient to the whims of America forever. And nearer home, if a report from the Climate Summit in Copenhagen two weeks ago are true, the budgets of nations, once they recover from the present economic crisis, are soon going to be stretched to the limit to cope with the consequences of global warming as it affects not just health, but the supply of water, the shortage of crops, and even the subsidence of roads in the Northern Hemisphere. Last week, was it, Germany announced that it's going to spend 500 million euros in building a wall to protect the city of Hamburg from the rising North Sea. For this emerging generation, who will have to pay the price for the excess of their recent forebears, there will need to be a revaluation of how we deal with that commodity with which ethics and religion have conspired to keep silence, namely money. The thing about which Jesus spoke to the young man of his day. Songs like Money Makes the World Go Round are no longer in fashion, not because musical taste has changed, but because the lyrics are embarrassing. And the Christian church has not helped 
We've been very good and should be congratulated for the way in which we have raised the plight of people, particularly in Africa, and had debt cancelled. We've also talked about money we need for leaking roofs and for damaged towers on our buildings. But when it comes to a fair wage, or when it comes to wage equality between men and women, or when it comes to be overburdened by domestic debt, or when it comes to the wages which are paid to those who are in high places of financial power, we have been singularly silent. And when it comes to the positive good of money, we sometimes have singularly been reticent to speak, and so we've ascribed to money an inherently malign or negative quality whereas money has no intrinsic moral status. There should be no embarrassment for Christians to speak about money because we of all world religions are the most materialistic. We celebrate a God who not only pronounced that the world, the material world, the material world was good long before humanity discovered ethics, long before humanity walked the earth. God said, this earth physical concrete is good and Jesus Christ came to become part of this physical world and to engage in eating and drinking and handling money and came in order that the love of God might be revealed as something which was focused not primarily on human souls that is not what John's gospel says not primarily in the Christian church. No, that love existed long before the Christian church began. God so loved the world. Cosmos. That's the word in Greek. The physical, material, spiritual, religious, financial, moral world. All of this is up for redemption in Jesus Christ. A term which has to do with cash value. And the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation speak without any embarrassment about money, as does Jesus. Think of his parables. They're either concerned with money or food, and sometimes both the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, Dives and Lazarus, the rich man with his barns, the laborers in the vineyard, the men looking for work, the rich fool, the debtors. But joined up thinking between this world of Scripture and God's passion and God's heart and our experience of life today, the joined up thinking has not always been so clear. So I want to offer three biblical perspectives to aid this process. And the first is that money is not, not, not intrinsically evil nor is it intrinsically a private matter. There is nowhere in the Bible which says that money is bad. Jesus never says anything of that sort. Rather, the benefits of money are something which God and Christ extol. Jesus does not keep himself, as sometimes we presume, to the company of those who are poor. There are a host of people of wealth and influence whose company he enjoys, Martha and Mary, Lazarus, Matthew, 
Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, rich Pharisee called Simon, another rich Pharisee whose name we don't know, Joanna and Susanna, all of whose houses he visits, whose entertainment he enjoys. It's wealthy men from Iraq who bring him his first gifts which his parents receive on his behalf. It's a wealthy man who gives a grave in which his body might be laid after crucifixion. And never, never, never on Jesus' lips are there words which demean money. Now, contrast that to the way that we speak of money. Dirty money, filthy lucre, shady deals, the black economy, loan sharks, backhanders, toxic debt. This kind of negative language does nothing other than demean currency and make it something we feel embarrassed about talking about as men feel embarrassed about talking about their prostate glands. It's a private matter. Let's not get too personal on the issue. And so when it comes to a matter like taxation, because it has to do with money, we and our politicians immediately see it as a negative from which we have to be saved. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was a taxpayer. And there are two occasions in the Gospels, once when he's in the temple and once when he's going up to Capernaum, where that is explicit. If taxation means that the hungry can be fed, that the criminalized can either be freed or the criminal properly dealt with, that the impoverished of the world to whom we are indebted might have a fairer chance, I will gladly pay more tax. That will be my Christian privilege. The community of which I'm part, the Iona community, has as one of its spiritual disciplines that we talk to each other about how much we earn, about the 10% at least which we give away, and about what we do with the 90% we retain. And for all of us, this is one of the most liberating conversations because it moves money out of the realm of private business into public confidential conversation. We don't publicize everything, but we share it with our fellow members. And I've sat moved by people who are earning four or five times my salary who say, this is so important for us. Because the more money you have, the more you're seduced to believe that you can do with it what you want and that extravagant nature of existence not only destroys your soul, but can destroy the souls of other people. I sat recently moved when two of our members said, we both earn over £50,000 a year. We're going to give one of these salaries away. We don't need this. And we will not be tempted by our fellow professionals to get a second car or a new car every year or a timeshare apartment in the Mediterranean or other such junk. We have a comfortable life. And under God, we have to live responsibly with the wealth which other people deserve. Secondly, money is a matter of and for morality. That's why if we look at the book of Proverbs, 
which is a very untidy book because it's just we kind of home pithy sayings which have been gathered together. But repeatedly, repeatedly, we find the Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Time and time again in the book of Proverbs, money becomes a moral issue. We cannot allow morality to be something which simply circumscribes that which happens in the bedroom and not the boardroom. That is a funny old morality and it's a funny old God who's only interested in one aspect of human behavior and not of all. Last week when I was in Amsterdam, one of my colleagues asked if I'd go with her to see a film which she'd seen before. It's a film called Milk. It's a film in which I suppose nobody who goes would feel particularly happy with everything which is portrayed. But essentially it's about a man in North America who moves from New York to San Francisco and there he's aware that there is an element of persecution against the minority of which he's a part, people who are, who are of homosexual disposition. And he begins to speak publicly against what is being said about them because the American right is organizing itself and people like Anita Bryant, who used to be an orange juice queen, suddenly comes out from being apolitical and from her evangelical stable, she begins in public to talk about homosexuals as being synonymous with pedophiles. Oh, and the rafters ring to applause when she says that kind of thing. I cannot imagine similar rallies of well-heeled Americans or British being addressed by other church figures who have crept out from the woodwork and winning the same applause when they say that bankers are synonymous with crooksters. Though in an article in the Telegraph last week, there seemed to be reason to substantiate such a claim taxpayers have effectively taken on the losses of financial institutions which police believe were targeted by organized white-collar criminal gangs whose members include corrupt bank employees, solicitors, and property developers. It's not just Mr. Mugabe and corrupt African states which demonstrate financial mismanagement in high places. It's their colonial overlords. And if the civilized West is prepared to be lenient to such activity, what right have we to criticize anyone else? It strikes me as a sad irony that a working man who buys the Sun newspaper cannot help but pay tax because it has deducted its source. But the media mogul, the Christian Robert Mur or Rupert Murdoch, who owns the Sun, only pays a proportion of his corporation tax because he manages to sequester the majority in offshore accounts. And yet, if the son were to find some unemployed mother who was claiming social security benefits and yet working in a chip shop on the side, she'd be in the front page and she'd be ridiculed for how she was doing the good British taxpayer out of what was their due. I remember when I worked in Amsterdam three, four weeks, four years ago, there were at the church there where I preached in the summer, 
two young South African lawyers who had come from South Africa to Amsterdam and I suggested that we might meet each other because I was intrigued as to why they had come and I also wanted to learn a bit about their work. I don't meet many people who work in international law. So we spent an evening together. And the course of which I said to them, now are you boys in the kind of businesses where if you became a partner in your law firm, you'd expect a bonus at Christmas? And one of them said, what do you mean? I said, well, a million euros, a million pounds. And both of them agreed that when they came and when they applied to different law firms dealing with international law and lots of money, they were told, if you want to make that kind of money at Christmas as a golden handshake or bonus, go to the city of London. We don't deal with this in Holland. I said, well, that's very reassuring. But would you expect to get any kind of bonus at Christmas? And one of them said, yes, if we became partners, perhaps. I said, like what? And this boy said, well, maybe like 100,000 euros. Now tell me, I said, who do you think deserves 100,000 euros more at Christmas? You who would have a good pay, or the primary teacher who believed in you so much when you were six or seven or eight, that now you have the position in life which you hold. Oh, one of them said, but that's to do with public versus private finance. I said, no, I'm thinking of private schools into which I go, where I don't see any teachers in private schools getting 100,000 euros at Christmas. Do you pray about money, I asked them, because they were both good evangelical Christians? Oh, no, they said. It's a private matter. Not in the scripture not in the scripture. And morality is not primarily for the bedroom. It's to do with the boardroom too. But finally, I make this point by telling a story of a friend of mine who lives in Chicago and sometimes when I'm working there, I stay with him and his wife. And it was a June summer morning and he and his wife left at eight o'clock in the morning as they always do. I wasn't going to work in the city. I was staying in their house doing some work at a desk and I opened the windows and felt this lovely fresh air so I put off the air conditioning, opened all the windows and a breeze blew through the house. Michael came back at about uh, six o'clock in the evening and he said, oh, where's what's happened to the air conditioning? Oh, I said, it's very simple. I'll just shut the windows and turn it on. We can do that very easily. And then later in the evening, I said to Michael, it strikes me that in the summer, you leave always at eight and you come back at six Monday to Friday and the air conditioning is on when the house is empty. And in the winter, you leave at eight and come back at six or later and the heating is on. Why don't you get a thermostat to turn these things off or on just half an hour before you arrive? And he said, um, but we can afford it. But I can afford it. Well, he may be able to afford it. But the issue is, can the world afford it? That kind of unquestioning extravagance, because we can afford it, therefore we should have it. And other considerations don't count. Because I can afford it, that is what the man would have said in that parable of Jesus about the guy who felt threatened because there might be drought or famine, so he builds barns 
far more sufficient than he would ever use, and perhaps ensuring that certain commodities go, don't go to those who best deserve them. Why? Because he could afford it. And he discovers that his barns cannot guarantee either his safety on earth or his eternal security in heaven. Because I can afford it, probably that's what the rich young man would have said to Jesus. I can actually afford to honor my parents. I can buy them many things. I can afford not to steal because I don't need to steal, nor do I need to kill. I can afford to live this life and to fulfill the commandments. And then Jesus confronts him with the one thing he cannot afford. And that is the cost of discipleship. Because when Jesus Christ invites us to follow him, there is no higher call on our compassion or our time or our desires. And the rich young man walks away because he could not afford Jesus. We have to change our attitude with regard to money to something which is more ultimately moral. The issue can't be any longer, because I can afford it, therefore I shall have it. The issue has to do with love. It has to do with love. It has to do with us asking ourselves, do we love the world as much as God loves the world? Because God loved the world so much that he became part of it and shared its pain in Jesus Christ and was vulnerable to its needs and to its hostility in order that the world and those in it might be saved. Do I love the world as much as God loves the world? Or do I set that aside and get what I want irrespective of the cost to the environment? And do I love other people so much as Jesus Christ loved other people that I will not in my demands of the world or my expectation of what I receive demean them or diminish their possibility? of living a long and fulfilled life? And do I love my children enough or my grandchildren? Or if I don't love my grandchildren because I have none, do I love other children enough that I will bestow on them a legacy of a world in which they can live happily? Or do I hope that I will be dead before they pick up the tabs of my extravagance? It's a serious way to end, but then it's a serious state we're in. But nothing is beyond redemption. Even in Chicago, Michael has bought a thermostat. <laughs> to the one who makes this and all things possible be our praise and our glory, now and forever. Amen. <laughs>